Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Hi everyone, welcome. My name is Mary Fox and I am the co-host here on Leveling Up. And our guest today is Nathan Knight. He currently leads performance management as well as learning and development at Better, a hyper-growth New York-based company with the mission of making home ownership simpler, faster, and more accessible to all Americans. We are going to cover a lot today, including how Nathan's team at Better is approaching learning and development, as well as his views on how leaders can incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion into their existing programs programs in order to achieve better results and outcomes. Nathan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We, of course, have a lot to cover, but for starters, you are based in New York City, which, of course, got hit pretty hard by the coronavirus earlier this year. What's it been like living in the city these days? Well, New York, New York is resilient, right? So it was definitely scary early on. The summer was this experiment with social distancing, enjoying the outdoors, and all the outdoor dining made us feel like we were in Europe. And now we're sort of, I feel optimistically cautious about the fall, but again, New York always survives. New York always survives. And, you know, I think it's been like the leading example of how cities can, like you said, the resilience that they've shown through San Francisco has really adopted a lot of those same practices and it's made a big difference in our lifestyle. The difference is that we don't have winter. So I hope that you, <laughs> I hope you guys make it through winter. So I wanted to get into your career a little bit today. Some people take very twisty, windy paths and end up in learning and development by accident. And you are very much not one of those people. So can you tell us how you ended up on the journey that you're on and really how did you get into learning and development? There was a little bit of luck for sure. My first job out of school was at Home Depot and it was in this leadership development program. And so while I knew I loved people and that I wanted to be in the HR space, I was able to firsthand experience how being part of a development program can change a career, can create great opportunities and mentorship. And there was sort of a double luck where the first project that I got assigned to was being part of the learning organization. And so my very first job was watching a company of over 300,000 people generate e-learning and roll out product training and see how that creates sales and more engaged employees and makes people happier and better at their jobs. And so I just fell in love with the space. And since then, and every move I've made has been definitely part opportunistic, but also looking for different ways that I can try something different, right? So try the learning work I've done before, but in a different industry or at a different size company. Shifting into consulting was an opportunity to just learn from super smart people and take a lot of what I kind of learned by doing and then realizing that there were frameworks and approaches that I could use to replicate it. So I appreciate you saying that maybe it's a little less by luck. Um, I think it's a mix of opportunity and being able to actually apply what we teach people about career development to myself. That's really cool. And it sounds like a lot of that experimentation, moving from one type of business to a different type of business. How do you feel that you've brought all of that into your role here at Better? You know, I, I think every time I'm at a company, I find myself repeating the same thing, which is sort of everything I've done has led me to this point. And I hope I always feel that way. You know, if I look at this current opportunity, what's really cool is the company is growing so fast. And so being able to see how L&D is both similar and very different at 
different sizes of companies from you know hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands to bigger helps with not only thinking about where we are today but where we're going to get to and so when i'm thinking about approaching programs or what systems we use it helps me understand that some need to be ready for now but some we actually need to build for the future and i think the other biggest part was the shift between being at sort of larger established brands of 25 you know 30 40 50 years versus you know most recently at casper which was a couple years I'm so thankful for having the opportunity to compare the startup space is very unique. And while, again, we're working on a lot of the same topics, the approach to building them for the first time versus refreshing them is distinct. Really interesting. Learning development in general right now seems to be changing. So not only are you moving from larger companies into smaller startups or vice versa, but learning development is changing with the world changing. And you seem to be on the cutting edge, really finding ways to make it easier for team members to develop the skills that they need for their jobs. Can you share a little bit more about the philosophy of learning and development programs within Better and maybe how your team is approaching people development more holistically? Let me start with my past experiences and companies are often, they bring in the one L&D person and then they have many, many months to sort of prove the case and try to build the team. And one thing I really appreciate that I'm getting to experience now and that I'm also seeing out in the market in different companies is learning and development as more people appreciate it. People realize to do it well, you need resources that may look like systems. It may look like partners, definitely looks like some team members. And so rather than starting with a very under-resourced, almost anemic L&D team, also expecting few people to do a lot of different things, something that I'm being very intentional about. And I actually think you're seeing a shift out there. I don't know if that's because people are learning to ask for it or people have lived through it not working, is the idea that focus on what's going to make a difference, resource it correctly, and treat it like you would technology, product, service development. If you want to do it well, then you have to be able to invest in it upfront so that you can start to build that momentum early and then figure out where the right way to build is. So treat it like a product. Yes, 100%. It is a product. And if Mm -hmm. you think about it, it's something that you not only have to deliver, but often something that is promised to a really important customer base, which is your employee, right? Uh, Oftentimes, they're shareholders. They're definitely stakeholders, and they're the people that are delivering whatever your product service is to your customer. And on the other side of this is it's one of the main reasons that people end up feeling disengaged or leaving, right? So to me, it's if you looked at any other, like this was a restaurant, and you promised people a certain type of food, and then they came for it, and then they left and on the way out said, yeah, you didn't have that on the menu, (laughs) then I feel like you would very quickly change your menu. And I think L&D is catching up to that. That companies are promising this level of engagement, investment in your career, and then not meeting that expectation? Is that... Yeah, I think that more companies are realizing that broad terms around career development and that you can grow here is not simply enough. And then when someone comes in, you can't bait and switch with you own your own development. You really have to be intentional around the types of programs or resources that you're going to provide to people that turns into them not only feeling like there's development, but seeing the outcomes of it. Absolutely. You know, it's something that we think about a lot at Marlowe too, is how can we help teams approach learning and development like a product? And I remember being at a conference about a year and a half ago, talking to an HR leader about this and 
it felt very novel in the HR space and learning and development space. And hopefully within the next few years, that won't feel novel. And that'll feel like, like you said, this is an area where we're resourcing, putting plenty of research behind, iterating until you find what works best for your teams. ROI is something that comes up a lot. And you and I talked about this a little bit before in our last conversation, but really designing and measuring the return of impact on all of the existing programs and curriculum that that your team is rolling out. It's tough. It's a really tough one, but I'm curious how you're approaching it and where do you see this space kind of moving in the future? ROI is such an interesting topic to get into. And I think it's the term ROI is sort of like a lot of things when you say them, it kind of washes over your brain and you're like, oh, here we go again. Because it's important, right? If you think about all the pieces of it, return, is important and impact is important. A lot of people talk about ROI in a offhanded way. And I tell a story all the time about being in an interview and starting to get grilled by the team about how I've specifically measured ROI and learning programs. And I kind of put the question back and I'm like, I'm curious to hear how you've done it. And I got silence, right? And, and again, I'm, I don't think that I would recommend that as an interview technique, but the reality here is different than the aspiration. And so, If I think about breaking it into an approach, it's one, we want to measure impact or we want to measure return on investment. I think that you can start to look at it in two ways. If we want to do better, I think you have to say, what is my baseline? We all agree that like a level one Kirkpatrick evaluation of experience and smile sheets is not going to do it. It's helpful to get, right? That's good data to help you with your program. But I set a baseline expectation that we know that knowledge transfer is required. If we haven't done that, the course wasn't successful. And so building that into the design is really helpful. Second is if you have a level three expectation baseline, right? So if ultimately our programs are about changing behavior because that's more likely to create impact, then I like to hold myself accountable to that as a success metric. You build that into how you're designing the course, you build that into how you set up the course, you build that into how you sell the course to people, and then you can find different ways to truly measure it in a quantifiable way. So that might be like someone's ability to pass a certification. Uh, If it's a skill training, if you observe performance and pull data from reviews, use 360 surveys at the beginning or ends of courses or interview teams, there's a lot of different ways you can see the behavior move. And I think that that's something really realistically that we can hold ourselves accountable to as L&D professionals. But on the matter of getting all the way to level four with every single course, I think that you have to first see where is that reasonable? Where do you want to actually set yourself up to hold yourself to that metric? And what are you going to do to measure it? I think of it in level of stakes, right? So there are some programs that you can do that are low stakes. And here is where experiment, make it fun. I don't think this is actually about return on investment. The return on investment can be measured in terms of what did you learn that you're going to apply to future things. Things on the other hand that are high stakes, this is where you should, you know, high risk, high reward, be confident, discuss the risks in advance, get air cover from your leaders. And these are the places where I think it's really valuable to have a true ROI measurement. But all of this matters if you're able to quantify both. This is what we're investing and this is what we expect the return to be. If it's just a money game, I don't know many learning programs that I think hold up to that well. You mentioned a high risk, high reward for something that's maybe going to be more important where you do need that level three, even level four, like we need to see the performance impact on this. 
can you give an example of it just not necessarily within your team, but of the types of trainings or skill programs that we just know that these have a long-term impact versus the types where teams are going to expect to see like real results much more quickly? Is it a difference between core professional skills versus technical skills or what do you see there? It's hard to say which ones people don't want to return on. So it's almost a matter of what type of return do people want on it, right? So when I think about very, very clear cut, let's think about product training. You are there to make sure people know the information on it, ideally that they're excited and that they can communicate that back to someone. Super clear, observable behaviors, very easy to measure right? In terms of, is this at least not hurting sales? And ideally you can start to get crafty with some AB testing and you can see by investing in this with this group and not in this other, right? We were able to see a higher degree of sales. That's really cool. Where I think this gets tricky is on people like the term soft skills, but the hard, hard skills of leadership and management that are nuanced, are usually private, or in these interactions that are hard to measure and quantify, and they typically are pretty expensive programs. So one approach I've taken is almost like you would with anything. It's like, don't skimp where it's highly, highly important, similar to like linens at home. <laughs> you know, things you're going to be spending a lot of time, like touching your body, you want them to be like the highest quality. And so this is where you get into the realm of high investment for an individual like coaching. Ideally, if you're able to bring the cost down and keep the quality up, that's a really big win for an L&D department. But if I'm able to show that by providing some investment into a specific leader or a specific team, and then show that we either solved a problem so it knows no longer there, or we help them achieve some sort of goal or reach an opportunity, I think that puts you in a really good spot to A, people are more excited that the outcome happened. And then B, the next step is figuring out if you need to bring the cost down, how can you do that? But that to me is tense. I notice that when the costs are higher and the number of people impacted are lower, the scrutiny goes way up. When a lot of people are being reached by a program, for some reason, scale, even though you think it's actually kind of higher stakes, sometimes there's a little bit more leniency of people get excited about executing it well and people feeling good about it. What's funny is I actually feel we should probably shift our approach on the latter because just doing the bare minimum or just doing the basics across a large population can create a negative sentiment and that can actually have longer lasting impact than perhaps that like higher priced thing you did for a small group. That would have been a perfect spot for me to make a plug for Marlo, but I'm going to jump over it. <laughs> um, <laughs> So right now, these days, especially we're still largely remote. I imagine your team is fully remote still these days. Is that the case? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And so what are the challenges and opportunities that you're moving into over the coming months? Right now, with people at home, there sometimes is a misconception that I think virtual or digital is faster. People want things really, really quickly. And keeping in mind that the concepts of learning and development and improving performance it still takes time and we don't have one of the benefits, which are people learning and working together in much more natural ways. So I am really trying to figure out how to make sure that we continue to educate people that this environment is new, not only for all of us, but requires a shift in how we think about programs and how we think about the magical part after learning or courses where people reflect on it and work on it and apply it and get sort of feedback in the moment. 
So on the other hand, uh, there's some real opportunities. We have people who have been saying for a very long time that development is important. I think companies are agreeing and asking us to deliver on. You have equalized the sort of learning playing field for a little while where everybody's virtual. Uh, and that's a really cool opportunity to create access to more people, to make the learning experience very equal and similar to everybody. It also gives you some interesting new tools and technology to play with. And we're also all upping our game. So when I think about the challenges of people wanting more faster, what I try to do is balance that with, I'll give you less, but I'll give you better. Yeah, and this is a great spot for you to test out all of those different approaches. Yeah, and really take a look at whether it's your tech stack or the programs that you're offering. And I think curate a little bit, sort of like an opportunity to like condo your whole learning you know, situation and be more thoughtful about what you're doing and what you're competing with and make sure that the things you're offering kind of back to the conversation around measuring return, almost looking less of return on investment in terms of resources and money, but return on investment as time. The time that people are spending with your program, how is that the best use of their time at this point versus everything from working harder to cleaning out their email to going outside and taking a walk, you know, to getting out of the house for a bit. You want to make sure that what you're doing is providing value on lots of different fronts. Absolutely. And every program is a marketing tool for the next one. So if this one's not meeting their standard expectation, why would they make time for the next one? Yeah. Well, especially being early on in the company, I'm trying to be very thoughtful about when I was recently piloting a program. And so being very, very clear throughout, this is a pilot and being even clear, like this is a content pilot. You know, we're not piloting the full experience right now and asking, I think one, like being transparent. I think that's a form of vulnerability. We tell leaders be vulnerable all the time. So with your programs, be really clear with people where you are with it what to expect. And second, invite their feedback in and truly in a way to say like, this is how we're going to use your feedback to improve the program. And then third, already planning ahead for, and then here's how we're going to catch those people when we have the better experience later to not make them feel like they're having to waste their time or double their time, but make sure that they also don't feel like they got left behind because they got the first round. Right, right. Interesting. I hadn't thought about pilots in that way. That last part that you just mentioned can be tough if you feel like you piloted it before it was ready, but then they also get the first opportunity to share that feedback. Kind of on that same note, you've mentioned in the past that you don't understand, and I'm paraphrasing here, so feel free to correct me, but it's strange to you that learning development programs haven't really been designed in a way that meets people where they already are and how they already consume their media and their content. We can feel free to fix that quote there, but how is your team thinking about using technology and the types of initiatives that you're rolling out? How does that thought interlace with what you're doing over the coming months? I mean, you paraphrase me perfectly. I don't think our brains switch modes. So when we're used to the interface of Spotify or Netflix, or when we are just series are getting better and better and better. And I feel like probably a lot of people, I'm definitely projecting my own experience, but I never watched as many documentaries as I have like the last two years. They've become just beautiful and really interesting. And so then you come to work and we almost take autonomy away from you, or we invite people to make the choice and then provide them with pretty subpar production value. And so I think it's a matter of not getting caught up in the cycle of, well, I don't have you know a million dollars in a studio. And instead being like, what do I have? And how can I work to make something feel right and feel good right to people to enjoy and to choose to consume in terms of this content? And so if I think about the simple things you need to have, one is a good authoring tool. 
and I'm intentionally using the word good. If your team are not really strong designers, don't get a really difficult, clunky tool. I've made that mistake before. It sort of made me think of when I used to have a car and I would get all these bells and whistles in it that I didn't know how to use. <laughs> like, it's like, that was a waste of money and time. And it didn't make this better for anybody. Help people on the team get comfortable using something really well, create some simple standards and build the connections, you know, with your design team or external people as needed to help you. Not everybody has the same skill level, but if you can make it easier to get to a certain level of quality that meets the expectations of your employees, then I think you'll be in really good shape. Second is whatever sort of platform or tool you use, whether that's as simple as like a Google site or all the way over to like a full scale LMS. If you think about content and the places that you go to get it, it's served up to you in a way that is ideally tailored and personalized to you using some sort of data that they have. It flows. There's something that takes you from one to the next. So you don't have to go search and find like, why are we putting that responsibility on people? And third, it's organized. It's like same idea. Like if you go into your cabinets, everything's all over the place. You don't want to cook in that kitchen. And so I think that we have to switch our view from how is someone going to experience this? And that's how I'm going to set it up and organize it so that it's easy. It's uh, clear. It's actually somewhat enjoyable. And it feels like it knows who I am. I'm a big believer in the concept of external leverage, particularly when it comes to things that you either don't have a really strong internal capability to do, or you don't have capacity to do. And ultimately it's more cost-effective to have someone else do that so that you can focus on things inside. And the two ways to do that is one, have a really clear sense of what you want so that you can go find the people that do that well, right? The best thing you can do is do a little bit of that work up front so you can make a very clear ask for the need so that somebody can deliver it because people would love to deliver it. And then second, build those relationships over time, treat them like friendships. They should have trust. You should have gone through some work together and learned how to work with each other. I've definitely learned to be much more compassionate and upfront about my needs and invite that kind of partnership. I've been very fortunate for my career that I've had a lot of very forgiving and competent partners. And I credit those relationships for some of the best work I've ever done. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. It kind of leads me to, for the sake of time, I want to keep going, but I have a million other questions to dig into on that one. I could geek out for designing great programs all day long and making sure that teams are set up well for it. On that same thought process of how do we really meet our users, our team members, where they are in their learning process and deliver something to them that's easy for them, you and I were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how we could do the same thing with our learning development initiatives. It's an important topic, and I, I want to start with how you feel learning and development can create a more inclusive and equitable and diverse environment within a workplace. Like, What is the role of L&D versus the role of other teams? Yeah, this is something it's very personally important to me and something I'm very, very passionate about. And while I'm sad about what it's taken to make this a more prominent conversation, you know, I can't change that. But what I can do is I'm glad that these are the conversations that we're having in the wake of it, specifically around development, L&D, reminding ourselves that since the dawn of time, like learning spaces are formative spaces where people are learning to think differently and they're experimenting with things and uh, hopefully they're being more vulnerable. And so we have to really model the behavior when we're there, sort of like children, Learners are watching everything we do, and I think it adds integrity behind practicing what you preach. Three things come to mind. One, we have to be super explicit in the content choices that we make, how we communicate, when we communicate, the language we use. 
remembering that we're creating a full end-to-end experience. So similar to how you might have a great experience in a store, but if you see their advertising show up in a really weird way, that's going to form that. So you got to be really explicit about all your choices. Second is the experience in the room. That is, how do you think about building your group of participants to value diversity? How do you think about the different facilitators that you bring in front of people, the times that you offer, the modalities to be really inclusive of everything from not just preference, but to ability. And then there's really implicit ways that the quote about people may not remember what you do, but they remember how you made them feel. I think that's where the implicit part comes in because those are all the little cues that we don't know we're picking up. And so that's the visuals you use in a course, right? How representative are those? Word choice really, really matters. One of the things we've got to figure out is how to stop saying you guys all the time, right? The tone that we use and our overall facilitation practices and how you're pulling people in. And so being explicit, mindful of the implicit pieces, and then overall creating an experience that's very intentional and thoughtful, I think is a bit of our responsibility. Second, how I work to build it into specific programs. Personally, I'm in the early days of that in my current role, but I'm intentionally trying to build a team as well as the partners that we're going to work with to be representative in a variety of ways. So of course, race, gender, sexuality, ability, everything, but also different perspectives from different companies being thoughtful that you know we're not just a collection of former startup people or corporate people, but looking at nonprofit organizations or people who've done really cool things. Having the people in the room making the decisions who have different experiences, as we all know, yes, hopefully it drives you to better things or different ideas, but it also, to me, creates that natural catch-all that even though something feels really good, someone else is helping you see the blind spot that you have. And then I really check myself constantly and get other people to check me in terms of my partners who come to me when I'm looking at programs. So one practice I've picked up and it's so simple that it's something that I've known you should do forever, but now doing it, I'm realizing how beneficial it is, is I have a collection of people that as I'm building something, I just use one-on-ones to be like, I just want to flash something thing to you and actively invite and say, I know I'm missing something. What am I not seeing? Or like, I want you to help me break it or poke holes in it. Building that practice, the first couple of weeks of doing that, people were still just being very nice and complimentary because people want to do that. But the more I created that space and that opening, I started to get really, really good shifts right? Really, really good call outs. And then once I like, thank you so much, that was helpful. Here's how I've made that change. I noticed the shifts are getting bolder and bigger. (laughs) Maybe I'll want to be careful what I wish for in the end, but in the meantime, it's made everything I do better and land better. That's great. And as you think about the types of topics that are coming up, you mentioned the word soft skills and how we agree that that's not the word we should use. We've got to come up with a better a better permanent tool, but we call them core skills, Amarlo. But as you're talking about, for example, have a one-on-one as a manager from that one-on-one with your direct report or how to facilitate a meeting, for example, is inclusivity and you know is that coming into that conversation as well as part of the training? A hundred percent. Almost kind of going back to that model before, right? As I think about the experience piece, I'm trying to be very intentional about who's facilitating in the room and who the participants are and all those pieces, but then getting into the content, this is where the explicit and the implicit come in. Explicitly into, say, our manager foundation programs, we're talking specifically about psychological safety and then connecting that in a very direct, clear, solid line way to inclusion and inclusive practices. And that helps take some of these terms that I think sometimes feel jargony and make them become very, very real. 
particularly when you're talking about something that someone's going to leave the room and go do right to go have a one-on-one or set goals with someone or give feedback and on the implicit side that is a absolute requirement so when we think about the visuals that we use the word choice the names of the people we use in examples the shadow figures that we put in a deck so really taking that step to very much call that out during the design process so while we'll never while presenting say and notice all of the different cultures we've tried to represent my hope is that people keep picking up on those cues and my dream is that they then also find ways to do similar things in their work because they know it made them feel good. Great. I hope people listen to this and take it away and apply it in their workspaces as well. It's so important. We're seeing a lot of efforts, but a lot of times they're really falling short, right? A lot of companies are trying to take action and create long-lasting change. And in May, we said, is this going to be a trend that's here to stay, that they're actually going to take action this time and really stay on this topic? And I just had an interview, um, which is also on the podcast with Abadesi Osinsade from Hustle Crew. And, you know, that conversation was about how a lot of companies are forgetting already, you know, and a lot of those conversations are going away. One of the topics I wanted to make sure you and I cover today is around allyship. You've mentioned in the past that you would like to see allyship as deliberate an action as collaboration and innovation so ubiquitous that it's a part of the interview process. And I think that it's also paraphrasing, but that conversation really stuck with me. Can you share more about how you think organizations should be embedding this within their training and existing programs rather than treating them as add-ons? I know we talked about it from like a broader scope, but specifically around allyship. How would that come into the interview process, for example? 100%. I love talking about this with people because allyship, there's something about the word that I think can be distancing for people. There's something about it that maybe they feel like an imposter. I don't know. And like when you break it down, allyship to me is so tied to having a learning mindset and being curious and being open and realizing that it's not about you and your preferences, but it's about, you know, or your experience or your life or your needs. Allyship is about being interested and figuring out how you can learn more about other people and support other people. It's a wonderful leadership trait. And so similar to how probably it's sometimes in the past, things like being really innovative and thinking outside the box versus just doing the factory you know, work or being highly collaborative instead of being very independently successful. Those are things that probably were not popular at some point. And so my hope is that we can kind of fast track a lot of the right behaviors through allyship. I think that shows up in all of the foundations of every program that you do. So we talked before about being explicit, talking about it, using the language, making sure that whether it's in your performance models, your interview, so whatever scorecard you're using or behavioral interview questions, allyship is an action. I was on a panel with Sasha Thompson, amazing, and talked about allyship as a verb. And I will credit her with that all the time because it was such an unlocked moment of it is something that you do. It's not who you are. And so you can take that, make it behavior, and build it into how we talk to people about how we work together, how we look at performance, how we ask leaders questions about what they've done or what they've learned or how they've tried to be an ally in the past so that when we invite new leaders into our organization, they're bringing that behavior in. You know, we're not setting ourselves up to try to change someone's behavior from day one. Onboarding is a huge place where I think it's great. Level one, right, is talking about your DI programs and commitment to it. But then when you can turn it into, and then here's how this shows up at every level and remind people that we want to reward you and recognize you for working this way, even when it's hard to, I think is a really cool entrance and sets the tone. And then probably the clearest place is across management and leadership development. 
whether it's your broad foundation courses, which kind of touch on a lot of different topics, or looking at this as one of those potential level two courses. So once you've gone through the foundations and now you're going to go get the master class on delegation, why isn't there one on being an ally? and thinking about how we help people process what that means for them, what they're already doing well, where some of their blind spots are, and what they can do about that. Again, we can apply everything that we know so well about how to build behaviors in people and how to reinforce those behaviors and create accountability to something like this. And for companies or organizations or just L&D teams that are struggling with how to make DEI a very present part of their program, I think that it's a no-brainer. It's so tied to being a good leader and to being a good person and being fun to work with. And it's one of those things that you can actually help people start doing immediately. One thing I said before is what's cool about allyship is I think there's a bit of an initial lift. But once you start doing it, it becomes easier and it stops becoming an intentional thing that you do. And it just becomes the way you do things and people respond well. So I could go on about the one forever, but <laughs> I would just love to see people get very, very uh, deliberate about it. And I'm holding myself accountable to doing that in the programs I'm building and in particular onboarding and especially management and leadership work. Do you have a go-to resource that, you know, when a manager or even just an individual contributor on the team says, I really want to get better at being an ally, but like you said, it's a verb and those tactical habits that you can do on a day-to-day basis are things that a lot of people are unaware that they should or could be doing. And so you don't know what you don't know. Where are you sending people? Is it an internal resource or do you have anything external? We're building a lot of internal resources on this. And I definitely, similar to any other behavior, I would ask people Like when we talk about what it looks like, one of my favorite tactics as a manager and a leader and as an L&D when I can't work with every individual is almost switching into coaching mode and being like, well, who does this really well? And go tell them they do it well and ask them how they've learned it. And as silly as it sounds, I think it's one of the simplest ways that is oftentimes so much more impactful than Google searching or reading an article. Second, on anything related, especially this year, I've definitely told a lot of people like maybe it wasn't popular answer. However... So many people have written so many wonderful things. Go search, go do the work, and then come back and let's have the conversation. Third, I think that there's some really obvious names out there. Anyone who's interested in this space probably knows, but maybe for people that are newer, these will be helpful. Jennifer Brown, I love her book, Inclusion. Uh, She just released a book on allyship and especially coming out from the large organizations is really helpful. I think a very different tone and style, but super inspirational. Michelle Kim is just amazing. And every time I like read a LinkedIn post or an article or a blog post, it like makes me want to march. Like I get very excited. And It's hard beyond that to like start pointing out specific people and brands and companies, but overall, when it comes to the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, allyship, I would encourage people to think of one or two other areas that you've been passionate about and that you've learned a lot about, and then apply that exact same process that you used to this topic. This isn't different than any other behavior or shift or move that you want to make to be better. And you've already learned how to learn. So just go apply that same tool because I guarantee you these topics will exist in those mediums. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I challenge that only slightly in that it's just like you say, if learning how to delegate, for example, you can read and you can read a lot. But I loved your point before, which is research does one thing, but going and talking to somebody who's doing this well is really the best way. Because a lot of times it's like, sure, I get this in theory. I get in theory how and when I'm supposed to do this. But in my day to day, in my work environment, how do I do it here? And I think that's where coaching can be a really powerful tool, like internal coaching within the team or, or otherwise. So I guess I don't challenge you at all. I agree with your first statement. <laughs> I will. Yeah, we'll, we'll meet in the middle and just agree with each other. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap up here. I have one last question. And thanks so much for taking the time again. But in terms of learning and development, as you reflect on your career over the past decade or more, what do you wish you could have learned sooner? This one is hard because being in learning, I think that the best learning that you get comes from experience and oftentimes the failures. So I'll say this as advice that I think anyone at any stage can benefit that maybe took me far too long to figure out. The first is there is a science to what we do and there's an art to what we do, but a lot of what we do is judgment. We're impacting culture and behavior and really setting the tone for those things. So you should really trust your internal flag of what's right and wrong. And there's no leader that you'll follow, no job, no money, no title, nothing that is worth diminishing those things. Your integrity and your reputation, they sound like lofty things, but you've got to think about like what side of history you want to be on at any point. People often use the, what would you say if this happened and this was on the front page of the New York Times? It's unlikely that we're going to be. But what I will say is what you do matters in your sphere of influence. And so... If I think about early on, I had a lot of opinions and thoughts about what L&D was supposed to be. And I think I was a little bit, I definitely have moments where I was like, I was probably one of those brilliant jerks, right? Who was running around telling everyone what I thought was right. And on the other hand, I may have been really naive and just believing what people said. And so I think that spending time to really figuring out what you believe, why you believe it, standing by it and seeing what we do as a business capability and a function so that you're really pushing the programs that are right things and not just taking orders or not just pushing your own agenda is critical to being successful. And then I think on the second side is that when I moved into the L&D space, so all those years ago, there were a couple of times that I really had people pushing me not to do it, telling me that it wasn't the right career choice or that you know it wasn't the area of HR or it's always the first to get cut. And I've been cut, you know, so like I've had it happen. And I think that while we're in a really cool time where learning and development after so much of the HR and people space has been automated or regulated, there's still a lot of creativity and innovation here. And at the same time, as there's a lot of like tech that's helping us scale, there's a lot of publicity and press about people wanting to do it. You still have people that have really strong opinions about what this work is or how important it is. You have people that want to scrape away at your pride and self-esteem. And for me, I think you've got to be really clear about how you feel. Do you feel good about the work you're doing? Do you feel good about the company that you're doing? And if you don't, then leave. There's so many great opportunities or so many things to do. And while I'll never say that I've wasted my time, I have found myself in situations where perhaps I stuck around too long or maybe kind of let myself be pushed around more than I needed to be. There are many different roads in life. And I think that there's a lot of cool opportunity. And so L&D people, like we got to stick together, but we all have to kind of look out for ourselves and make sure that we kind of like put our oxygen masks on first and take care of ourselves so we can take care of people. And then I think the last part is something that 
I ask in a lot of interviews, and I'm always curious when people in the space can't answer that. If you want to be in the space of learning and development, you've got to develop yourself. You've got to make that a priority. So be ready to answer the question, how do you keep yourself growing? How do you stay current? Who do you go to for support? What are the tools you use? And ultimately, you know, where are you trying to get to next? Because learning and development is not just about training. It truly is about developing and growing. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you for taking the time to join me today. It means a lot. I know that your team over at Better is doing incredible work. We will link to how people can find you and Better, as well as how they can find some of the resources that you've mentioned throughout. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes.